Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. To True Crime Feed, I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Alrighty, we have a lot to go over today, so let's jump right in. We have part two of World Wide Web of Evil, the story of Paul LaRue. And if you haven't listened to part one, be sure to tune into that episode first before you continue to listen. And as always, to take your enjoyment to the next level, go to thetruecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. So in last week's episode, we met baby Paul at an orphanage in Zimbabwe. We saw him excel at computer programming in his teen years. We saw his struggles to make money in his early career as others profited from his innovative computer codes. We saw his heartbreak when at age 30, Paul LaRue discovered he was adopted. And we also learned about his first evil Bond villain venture, his online pharmaceutical company, RX Limited, which sold prescription drugs online, mostly pain pills and synthetic opioids direct to consumers, which made Paul hundreds of millions of dollars and perpetuated the growing opioid crisis in the U.S. and Canada. And now two Minneapolis DEA agents, Kimberly Brill and Stephen Holdren, from the Obscure Tactical Diversion Squad are investigating RX Limited and Paul LaRue. After subpoenaing his phone records, they see Paul has recently been making a lot of calls to Somalia. What on earth is he up to there? Because he certainly isn't conducting his pharmacy operations out of Somalia. But little did these agents know... Paul was expanding his evil empire into new, exciting, emerging businesses. So now we're going to answer the question, what is Paul up to in Somalia? I'm going to give you three guesses. 
Paul is A, teaming up with local pirates to start a commercial tuna fishing operation. B, sending a Filipino botanist to grow cannabis, coca, and poppy farms. Or C, buying coastal properties and furnishing them with a mini arsenal of weapons and creating a militia. What do you think? Is it A, B, or C? Guess what, guys? It's all of the above. Paul chose Somalia because he figured things were completely lawless there and he could do whatever he wanted without any regulation. But none of these absurd Somalia-based startups panned out exactly how Paul envisioned. Turns out it's pretty hard to ship supplies in and not a whole lot of updated infrastructure. He found that out the hard way when he tried to build himself an airstrip. The tuna fishing one I know sounds like the weirdest, but it actually could have worked if he really stuck with it. I guess there used to be a lot of fishing off the coast of Somalia by foreign-based commercial fishers until locals had enough, which led to some modern-day piracy. Paul wanted to work with the local pirates, buying them off and hiring them to do security for his fishing operation. But midway through his Somalia-based startup projects, he got bored and moved on to new territories. Several, in fact. Paul starts a logging operation in the Democratic Republic of Congo, harvesting quarry trees, which are known for their resins and gums and for making guitars, ukuleles. They also have the perfect weight-to-strength ratio for yacht hulls. I think this is by far the most wholesome of all Paularu's many operations. And while he's there, Paul figures he may as well start smuggling gold out of the Congo too. He gets bamboozled the first few times and then hires enough muscle to smuggle yacht loads of gold out of the Congo over to his fancy pants compound in the Philippines. He gets pretty good at this and even starts buying entire mines to harvest gold and other precious metals. The gold comes in handy in the future when he needs to bribe politicians and launder his money from his other black market schemes. Like arms dealing! Paul procures some goods and technology systems, aka missile guidance systems, and sells them to Iran. Cool. There are also rumors he tried to smuggle gold from former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, and he was also ramping up his militia in Somalia to supply them with AK-47s and light machine guns so they could potentially invade the Seychelles and overthrow their government. Hurrah! Speaking of fun with governments, Paul LaRue partners with North Korea for his newest business venture, Trafficking Methamphetamine. Isn't this starting to sound like a weird post-op fever dream? Like seriously, is this real life? Unfortunately, yes, David, after the dentist, the North Korean government manufactures meth. It's some of the purest meth in the whole world, and the U.S. is one of their biggest indirect customers. Really, guys, did we not learn anything from the D.A.R.E. program? Oh, oh, we didn't? Okay. There were even men under Paul LaRue's employment allegedly raising funding for startups through kidnapping. Because it's a quick, easy way to raise some capital with very little overhead. He conducted a lot of operations in Papua New Guinea, bribing politicians with foreign women in the sex trade. 
Side note, I did not know a lot about Papua New Guinea before tuning into this story. Um, so I wanted to do a little more research and it sounds equal parts beautiful and dangerous. It has one of the highest rates of reported rape in the world. There are also an estimated 50 to 150 accused witches murdered on the island every year. I want to stay on topic with the episode, but the history of Papua New Guinea is fascinating and often tragic. The Catholic Church definitely did some hashtag influencing there. It's worth reading more about, but for now, I'll just say it's a bad place to do Harry Potter cosplay. And as if all this isn't gross enough, Paula Rue is also doing this thing, which is so incredibly disturbing. I barely want to touch on it. Uh, so Paul wants to have a lot of children. He creates a spreadsheet of women and tracks their fertility. One of the theories is so he can create his own loyal army. Another theory is that it will help protect him legally. For example, if he has a child in Brazil, they are less likely to extradite him to the U.S. if he is prosecuted for his narco-terrorism. Paul LaRue conducts his shady business all over the world, owning many properties, and I'll use the term girlfriends loosely, in several countries. But his primary home base is in the Philippines. Here he bought off politicians and law enforcement with gold bars and was basically untouchable for a while anyway. We'll get there. But first let's discuss how was Paul able to conduct all of these illegal activities in such dangerous places? Through some very strategic hires. Former members of the U.S., U.K., and Israeli military were on Paul LaRue's payroll. Dude, this is kind of crazy. On the podcast episode of Reply All titled The Founder, author Evan Radcliffe tells host PJ Vote how surprisingly easy it was to find these guys later on. They were former hitmen who were listing their job experience on what was the equivalent of LinkedIn. Evan would search for one of Paul LaRue's many shell companies, like Southern Ace, and easily find former employees. He also marveled the way they creatively worded their experience, with terms like human troubleshooting. This is one of my favorite parts of Evan Radcliffe's book, hearing what it was like for these former military guys to work for Paul LaRue. Being an everyday civilian, this is a world many of us will never know. So it's a shock to hear these guys speak so honestly and openly. I remember feeling that same uneasy way when I listened to Dan Taberski's podcast series, The Line, about possible war crimes in Iraq. If this topic intrigues you, you absolutely need to check out The Line. But getting back to Paul, he hires a guy named Dave Smith to be his number two head of security and personal hitman. For a while, anyway. Dave Smith is a UK native who worked private security in Iraq and had many connections. You see, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan wound down, kind of, the labor market was flooded with young military and private security workers who were looking for employment and would not be content with the typical 9-to-5 desk job. Paul LaRue paid them a monthly stipend and sent them out on crazy wild missions, like this one. Okay, remember last episode when we talked about Paul's online pharmacy, RX Limited, and that he had call centers in Israel? 
Well, one of his Israeli call center managers by the name Moran Oz had an idea to open a pharmacy in the U.S. to help fulfill RX Limited orders and make a killing in the process. Paul got word of Moran Oz's idea, and he wasn't too keen on it. He hired Dave Smith to pose as a business contact and lured Oz to the Philippines. Upon arrival, Dave Smith and a few other gentlemen posing as businessmen take Oz on board a yacht and then push him over the side. Moran Oz is bewildered, bobbing around in the water. Then Dave Smith starts questioning him while his associates fire bullets in the water around him. You see, Paul LaRue took Oz's interest in opening a pharmacy as a competing threat to his business. And he wanted to be sure Oz wasn't stealing from him or looking to start a direct competitor with RX Limited. Oz assured the men that this was a huge misunderstanding and he has pulled out of the water safely. But Moran Oz was lucky in comparison to the others who were suspected of stealing from Paul LaRue. Two brothers were accused of stealing gold from his smuggling operations in Africa. So he lures one of them to the Philippines and has an employee sneak drugs into his suitcase, then calls the Filipino cops on him. He is immediately arrested and thrown in prison. Paul's cousin, Matt Smith, no relation to Dave, also happened to owe Paul about 50 grand, which is chump change. I mean, Paul wastes more than that daily on his failed missions. But still, he had cousin Matt's home firebombed just to send a message. Paul LaRue also has not one, but two female real estate agents assassinated in the Philippines on the suspicion that these women stole from him. And then Paul LaRue turns on Dave Smith. You see, unlike Paul who flew under the radar doing everything in his power to avoid attention, Dave Smith enjoyed flashing his wealth. He liked blowing coke and then speeding around the Manila Red Lights District in his Lambo. Oh, and he started stealing gold from his boss. So Paul LaRue had to hire a hitman to kill his hitman. And Paul wanted to go in person for this one. He and the newly hired hitman lure Dave Smith to a secluded Manila property under the guise that they are going to bury some gold. Dave essentially digs his own grave, and then he is shot. But oh wait, the gun jams and Dave doesn't die right away. He is screaming in agony. Paul and the other hitman can't get the gun unjammed. Then a pack of wild dogs comes up onto the scene and they have to chase them off. Finally, they get the gun working and finish Dave Smith off. Paul even takes a few shots at Dave to be sure he's dead. And as if this wasn't already the darkest comedy of errors, Paul and the new hitman wrap up Dave in plastic and throw him off the side of a boat. But Dave's body won't sink. So Paul has to jump off and cut holes in the plastic. I know Paul, right? Plastic wrap is really frustrating and hard to work with. So at this point, we get a whole manila folder with murders connected to Paul LaRue. And there is a new president of the Philippines during that time who ran on fighting corruption. Paul's feeling the heat, getting paranoid, so he decides to skip town. 
He goes to Liberia, where he is propositioned for a new business opportunity by some empresarios from Colombia. We'll check back in on Paul in his big business meeting in just a moment. But first, let's see what our friends in the Minneapolis Tactical Diversion Squad are up to, shall we? Kimberly Brill and Stephen Haldron have been quite busy connecting the dots and putting a case together against Paul LaRue. For a good five years, they worked this case, pleading for more help and more resources from other branches the whole time. But no one seemed to care, which is crazy because at the same time, Kimberly Brill and Stephen Haldron are shouting from the rooftops about how dangerous this guy is. There are current and former employees of Paul LaRue trying to whistleblow on him to the U.S. authorities, and they can't get a call back either. There's even this guy, a former call center manager named Nestor Del Rosario, who went to the U.S. Embassy in Australia under the name The Persian Cat to squeal on Paul LaRue. But no one took his cat call serious at the time. Then finally, some members of the DEA's 960 group, which is a narco-terrorism squad with a boatload of resources, they start to take notice. At this time, some of the pain meds being peddled on RX Limited are now being classified as scheduled drugs in the U.S., a few pharmacies have been raided, and employees associated with RX Limited are being indicted. And now, Paul LaRue is being named as the head honcho in other international narco-terrorism crimes. But Paul is smart enough not to step foot in the U.S. They're going to have to catch Paul another way. Even if he makes a visit to a country with a favorable extradition policy, they still need to gather direct evidence against Paul to implicate him on his international arms dealings, gold smugglings, and drug traffickings. That's when the DEA comes up with a plan. A sting operation to take down Paul LaRue once and for all. Okay, back to Paul LaRue hanging out in Liberia. So he's there procuring some high-quality meth and other various drugs when he is propositioned by a Colombian cartel boss who wants to meet in person to discuss a deal. Paul obliges and meets with the Colombians in a hotel room. Without the knowledge, he's just walked into the lion's den. You see, the Colombians are informants working for the DEA. And they are hoping they can catch Paul on a secret recording implicating himself in some way to the drug trafficking. They just need one little tidbit. But lucky for them, Paul spills all of his secrets like an eager fifth grader desperate to impress the popular kids at a sleepover. Ugh, it's almost cringeworthy to watch Paul on camera brag and boast to these men posing as high-powered cartel leaders. Obviously, Paul is really smart with computers, but he has this juvenile sensibility to him. And I think back at everything he went through his whole life, being adopted, his early days in Zimbabwe and South Africa, his rebellions as a teenager, feeling burned in his early days as a computer programmer, his rise to power, making all this money, then the violence. What was it all for? What is he trying to prove to people? It clearly stopped being about the money. Paul had another goal motivating him. I can't say for sure what that was, but I did see that Paul made statements that he wanted to buy land in the former territory of Rhodesia 
and hand it over to white farmers to, quote, take back control. I don't know, man. This guy is one of the most fascinating, disgusting, horrifying, and sad people I've ever come across. And what happens in this case next makes me want to Ralph off a roller coaster. Kimberly Brill and Stephen Holdren work their tails off putting together a detailed investigation against Paul. When it gets handed to the higher-ups, instead of running with the ball, doing just a little more work, utilizing all these people who would have been willing to turn on Paul, they instead build a cooperating down-style case. AKA, they give Paul LaRue immunity on many of his crimes if he names former employees who worked under his direction. He admits to at least seven murders, and at the time, he could have potentially gotten as little as eight to ten years. That's where the original Reply All podcast ends. You don't know what his sentencing was at the time, but I'm happy to report the following update. In 2020, Paul is sentenced to 25 years. Upon his release, he will be extradited to the Philippines to stand trial for the murders of the two female real estate agents. While serving his sentence, he has already gotten in trouble for trying to operate call centers from prison. I also have one last wacky weirdo Paul LaRue theory for you. There is much speculation on the internet that Paul LaRue is also the mysterious founder of Bitcoin, who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto, whose disappearance from the internet corresponded with Paul's arrest. I don't know how much credence I want to give this theory, but it's a pretty hot topic on message boards. You can also hear an awesome episode about the history of Bitcoin from back in 2018 on a Reply All episode number 115 called The Bitcoin Hunter. It's a nice palate cleanser after listening to this story. And it's interesting to hear back and imagine Paul LaRue as the inventor of Bitcoin. Plus, you will at least have something to talk about if you're ever at a party and the bros are talking about crypto. Because if you're anything like me, you're always searching for ways to turn the topic of conversation back to true crime. And like I mentioned in part one, you can hear more about Paul LaRue on the Reply All episode number 156 titled The Founder. And also check out Evan Ratcliffe's book, Mastermind. It's so good, you guys. I can't wait to hear from you about this case. I was shocked that someone like Anna Dalve got so much coverage, and this guy is still kind of an obscurity. So tell me your thoughts. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow True Crime Feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, hey you. I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. Before we start, I wanted to mention that there's a new season of Over My Dead Body coming out about a fella that goes missing on a hunting trip and is presumed dead, possibly eaten by alligators, 
or was it murder? I'm excited for this new season scheduled to drop on the 21st of August, 2023. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And now let's get to the goods. Here are the three shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. At the number three spot, we have Smokescreen Season 7, Betrayal on the Bayou. Here's a synopsis. For almost two decades, DEA Special Agent Chad Scott ruled the streets just north of New Orleans. He controlled a network of snitches by convincing people he arrested to work for him as informants. Chad would stop at nothing to put drug dealers behind bars. His successes won awards at the DEA, but his willingness to bend the rules earned him a terrifying reputation on the streets. Some called him the Golden Boy, others called him White Devil. Investigators go over his career with a fine-tooth comb, asking the question, is Chad Scott the greatest DEA agent in the South, or is he a criminal? Yeah. I listened to the first two episodes, definitely some filler and a little repetition, but you're getting access to a lot of voices directly connected to the case, including Chad. And I'm particularly blown away by the strategies, both legal and non-legal, these DEA agents are using to take people down. Even though they all know at the heart of it all that this war on drugs is futile. It's pretty mind-blowing, really insightful glimpse into the DEA, I can't wait to hear more from Smokescreen Season 7, Betrayal on the Bayou. At the number two spot, we have Believable, the Coco Berthaman story. Here's a rundown. Coco Berthaman became internet famous by sharing her story of surviving sex trafficking as a young child growing up in Germany. She was sheltered and supported by families in Utah where her faith and fame intertwined. But in 2022, Coco was arrested for raising money for a fake cancer diagnosis, and people began to doubt everything she had ever said. Is her life truly one big, elaborate lie? The story is bananas. On the latest episode, we hear from Coco's mom, and we start to get some answers to help put all the pieces together. I keep thinking I know where this is all going, but it feels like every episode the compass is shifting. Believable the Coco Berthaman story is very complicated and I can't stop listening. And at the number one spot, you already know, it's The Girlfriends. Here's a reminder about the show. It's 1995 and Carol Fisher is a high-flying divorcee looking for love in Las Vegas. It's slim pickings in the medical community she works in. But then Bob comes to town. Bob Bierenbaum is a plastic surgeon who flies planes and speaks several languages. Her mom loves that he's Jewish, but there's something off about him. He's perfect on paper, but he's quick to anger and never talks about his ex-wife, who, it turns out, is missing and presumed dead. In this riveting nine-part series, Carol Fisher uncovers the truth of Gail Katz's death, the systems that failed her, and all the girlfriends that brought her to justice. Ugh, the drama. I just love this. And I think we are headed for a big payoff with this podcast. 
The girls gossiping actually leads to some breaks in the case. We also hear a probable theory about Gail's murder. More than anything though, I just love the warmth that Carol Fisher has brought to this whole project. It really feels like a love letter to sisterhood and female friendship. This is my absolute favorite podcast right now. I highly recommend you tune in to The Girlfriends. Now for my miss of the week. We have corruption in Tennessee. What happened to Grant Solomon? Here's a synopsis. On July 20th, 2022, 18-year-old Grant Solomon tragically died in Gallatin, Tennessee. His body was found in a ditch underneath his own truck. And what was described as a freak accident, the details of Grant's death remain unclear. The only known witness was Grant's father, Aaron Solomon, a former Nashville TV news anchor turned financial analyst. There was no investigation into the accident and shockingly no autopsy, though there were many discrepancies between Aaron's story and the state of Grant's body. All right, while I am glad this case is being covered, the show is an example of harmful gossip. They clearly want to get attention on the case and reopen the investigation, but this approach feels very amateurish. I think the opinions and speculation can do more harm than good. If there was a murder, I hope the case is reopened and that Grant Solomon's killer is brought to justice. But I look forward to hopefully another investigation team covering the case. And for now, I'm going to send corruption in Tennessee. What happened to Grant Solomon down my podcast queue trap door? Find out next week if the girlfriends will continue to dominate the number one spot or if there will be a surprising upset. Let me know what trending shows are in your top three and what show fell through your podcast queue trap door. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to true crime feed. Thanks for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.